Okay, we're on part two. Uh, do you need to do another intro? Welcome to the Movil.org podcast episode number 48.B. Yes, sir. Of take two yep. of what we originally called the Pantone problem. Yes. <laughs> That's what it comes down to. We still have to call it that. We still have to call it the Pantone problem. Because uh, some people do seem to have um, uh, quite an issue with this this whole Pantone thing. Oh, they're a different Pantone to us. It looks like my sister after three hours in the sunbed. <laughs> oh, well, this is the one thing I've always wondered, though. You know how... Okay, so... <laughs> No, really. So for the disclaimer, the the racist peoples, or the people who don't like brown people, why do they why do they want so much to be tanned? Uh, uh, it's different because when you're tanned, you're orange. I suppose, <laughs> but they're gonna be darker, you know, and they hate the, the uh, dark people. No one likes uh, sort of, you know. If you're, if you're white and you want to write in and explain, yeah, um, <laughs> I think it's got something to do with you know, darker skin, shadows, definition. It's like bodybuilders tan themselves up because you get more muscle definition on darker skin. Right. Okay. More so. shadows cast across and all that stuff. That's some of it. Plus, it can smooth out your complexion. Plus, you look like you're rich and you can go on holiday a lot. <laughs> I, I fuck knows. There's probably more reasons. Yeah. Uh, but yes, it's, yeah. it's, it's odd. One of those odd things that we get used to. Disclaimer. Disclaimer. So we'll repeat the disclaimer. Uh, got no offense in- intended here. Um, but like I said, if you have um, ears, then you may find some of this offensive. Um, which is our way of saying most people are going to find something offensive or something they disagree with. But we've tried to research as much as we can. And what's not researched is our commentary and opinions uh, around this awkward place where we find ourselves in society at the moment um, and how it links back to films and movies. So this episode was triggered by comments around Dear White People when it came out as a series. I was going to read out the disclaimer that we wrote on episode 36. Really? What does it say? It says... In this episode, quick, got an quick, unusual... quick disclaimer. Which from, from, oh, from okay. A quick disclaimer, though. This episode is an attempt to have an open conversation about diversity issues in film and TV, especially lack of racially diverse talent. Well, this is this is not what we're talking about. All right, let's go. <laughs> <laughs> we, the next bit says we attempt to discuss our opinions of the opinions of the current situation from our non-white perspective. And (laughs) do not intend any offense. Well, sometimes we do. Um, Because, you know, if... um, Our intention isn't to offend people. But if I say something sort of anti-white supremacist and someone is a white supremacist Um, and they've decided to have a listen and they get offended, you could say that that offense is intentional. Okay, yeah, yeah, I suppose. Oh, didn't so, think of it that so, way. Uh, uh, so today I'm not going to apologize to all my okay. supremacist listeners. Um, 
you're not taking offense. No. I know you've got your your haircut on. Not at all. Cool. Uh, the reason I have this haircut, obviously, is to balance out. Me. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's to show you I'm not afraid. And do not intend any offense or negative sentiment towards any group of people. That's not true anymore. <laughs> that Jokes. is not true anymore. All right. Well, let's scratch that. Not after we? Charlottesville. No. Um, I have to admit to a little negative sentiment. Yeah. Um, but I think a bit of not not disclaimer. Just oh, just an FYI, I guess from from my behalf. Yeah, if he, uh, I said it in the first episode, but I'll say it. Um, not first episode, the first part of this episode. I'll say it again. Is I'm going to do my best to try and articulate the, uh, the things that we talk about in this episode. Um, I'm still kind of discovering how the world works because I've now grown a brain. Um, and so I'm still trying to figure out um, how the well, world is. But that's great. And that's good because that because you are almost another generation to where I am. So it's nice to see what you're picking up from this and what your reflections are. Yes. Last line. We hope everything we have said will be taken into context so we can have ongoing discussions around these sensitive topics. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> we're going we're gonna to go over background of um, the whole Dear White People thing, which was around white privilege, very obviously. Yeah. Um, where we are today, how we got to where we are, and why we are where we are. Because a lot of people won't understand that. But once I've gone over some some technical stuff, some discoveries from research. I'll try and make them short and s- simple. Um, it, might make more, it might make more sense. Then we'll talk about where to now and some other notes. So <coughs> do you want to get started or shall I get started? Alan G. Johnson, you know about him. He was the guy who made the uh, lists of movies. He, he talked so much about uh, how he was the one who started the whole Oscars shit, kind of. One okay. of the people. What are the um, Oscar So White thing? Yeah. Okay. Heavily influenced it. Um, and he said, you could take any 10 movies throughout history and swap them with the current 10 movies. And if you take Moonlight off the top, you yeah. couldn't tell which decade they were made in based on the demographics in the movies. He, in fact, at the end of the article on his blog, he says, eons from now, an archaeologist from another planet would have no trouble concluding from this record that the real human story in this society was about straight, white, non-disabled males and with everyone else being little more than a bit players in supporting roles whose stories were not worth telling. <sighs> powerful stuff. And therein lies our introduction. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> I like that. So, dear white people. Yeah. Um. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, excellent. Okay. Let me... I'll... I'll I'll speak about the show because I know you've got a bunch of notes here. Yeah, I'm going to burn through most of it. Go on, you, you talk. Um, but I'm going to talk about the show itself and how I felt, I guess, when I first watched the show. Cool. So it was kind of almost on the cusp of me try, uh, trying to figure out... Wait, wait. Well, what's the show about for anyone that hasn't seen it? Okay, so Dear White People, um, it begins... So I'm not going to talk about the movie because it still kind of follows the same premise of the movie, but it's told in a kind of different format. Don't watch the movie. Um, so the first episode of Dear White People takes place on a university campus, Winchester University. Is it, It's in New York, isn't it? It's based in I New York. it's made up. Yeah, no, it's made, uh, based in New York, isn't it? Based in, yeah. Based yeah. in New York. 
Yeah, it's like a sort of Columbia type place. Right. Yeah. Um, and it the episode starts at a blackface party, uh, which is being held by um, a group of of white people, um, and is then crashed by a group of black people, uh, and the series, at least the first half of the series, uh, follows a bunch of different people um, from the black side. Is that I can say that? <laughs> um, it's told from their perspectives. Think of Crash, I guess, almost um, with these intertwining stories, and it's all kind of leading up to this blackface party. And the, the second half of the season is kind of telling um, of things that happened after the party. Um, so that's the kind of basic premise of the of the of the show. Um, that's the second crash movie with the intertwining stories, not the first one where they get off and start having sex in the middle of car crashes, which is a different film. I'm guessing you meant the second one. Yeah, yeah, cool. I haven't seen that first one. I'd like to see it though. No, no, okay. Well, yeah, okay. Is there intertwining stories in that? Watch is it, it intertwining the things? The, watch it with the sound off. This will be really confusing. Okay. Um, so when I first watched the show, um, I was kind of on the cusp of just being awake, I guess, would be the easiest way to explain it. Um, and so... Awake, watching, from, awake from what? So this whole time, before I'd realized what racism really was... Um, and how it was impacting the world and impacting me um, and other people. I had my eyes closed. I was unaware to the oppression that people were going through. Um, You're not the first person from your sort of age demographic yeah. um, who has said that or said that to me. Interesting. In fact, I've been told from someone else your age mm. racism is not not you know he was white he said racism is not even a thing anymore interesting it's over <laughs> <laughs> well, that was in, inside that's what that was my reaction was and so admittedly um i was one of these people who believed that everyone was the same uh um, yeah we're all the same yeah of course we are um and i didn't see people for I guess you know whether they were black, white, whatever they were. I didn't. I didn't see them as that. I just saw them as people. Um, and to some extent, I like, like that guy in the office. Like that guy in the office. <laughs> he was colorblind. Um, uh, and to some extent, I I understand why I thought that way because in my head, the way I justified it was that it was being equal, and it was um, to me that was equality. Um, which is fine to some extent until you start reading about how there is no equality. Um, and that's gone. That's strange because what you seem to be saying is that you felt that everything was cool mm -hmm. until you read something and then you thought, oh, things are not cool. Yeah, literally. That is literally what happened. I can't remember what it was that but tipped then me you, over the but, edge. But what changed for you? How do you mean? As in, As in your life was all the... Same or not the same? Um, yeah, my my day to day still remained the same, but the way I, the, my perspective on things changed. The okay. way I perceived uh, workplaces, the way I saw people changed. 
um, you know, my white friends were still my white friends, but the the realization that they didn't understand what privilege was, I started to understand that, and uh, the fact. So, would you say that? Would you say that you saw and experienced um, privilege before all of this tidal wave of information hit you? Absolutely. It's what I think. Um, but hang on, on. But so what you seem to be saying is that was your norm, and you didn't. I, I, tell me if I'm wrong. You seem to be saying that that was you. You saw it and experienced it, and the fact that other people who were white didn't see it was your norm. Yeah, I suppose to some extent. I don't mean. Don't let me put words in your mouth. No, no, no. To some extent, yeah, you're right, but not. I suppose. So. Before I I, I um, realized all of this, uh, I guess it, to me it was it was normal. It, things that were happening, the fact that uh, you know, let's say if I was in school and and white kids might have been picked before me was normal to me. Um, the fact that I was Indian didn't occur to me until, which is really weird to say, and I, I'm just realizing it now. The fact that I am Indian didn't occur to me until I guess I started realizing all of this. I don't just realized I'm Indian until um, So you'd uh, never looked in the mirror and thought No, I mean oh, uh, Wicked tan <laughs> <laughs> No, of course, I mean uh, I knew I was Indian and I you know, I was kind of semi-aware of some of my heritage and I knew I was Hindu and um, all this other stuff, but I didn't know that it actually had an impact on my life to me i was integrated within society okay um and that is what that was the biggest thing that changed for me and i'll be honest with you it's not until i started this new job where i actually feel valued regardless of the color of my skin okay um even though when it's strange to say even though um predominantly the university is actually predominantly white. Um, the staff? Yeah. Okay. Um, but I I feel like I felt when I was a kid when uh, when I thought that my race didn't have anything to do with the way I was treated. And I don't know if that's a good or bad thing. So what would you say to what would you say to people that say what are you talking about? White privilege doesn't exist. Have you ever had that? Yes. Well, 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 give me an example of white privilege. What are you talking about? Um, Why do you think this thing is a thing? So let me. Okay. So let me. So this is where my kind of uh, inexperience and. Um, Can we just jump back to dear white people and why we're talking about this? Sure. Okay. So dear white people. Was the first time, I, I'm not going to say I understand it because you can't. You can never truly understand what black people go through. I'm going to use black people as a, as an example because that's what the show is about. I guess. Um. You can't truly understand what black people go through until... Well, you can't, unless you're black. Full stop. Um, but you get a perspective. You you get to see what they go through through watching the show and find maybe the show isn't a, a fully 100% accurate representation of what actually goes on, but it's damn good uh, a look at how things are, the state of the world we're in. Um and it wasn't until I watched this show that I realized that this shit 
actually happens because it was from the show I started watching other things. I started watching 13th and I watched these videos and I read these things and I realized that this thing actually happened. White, white privilege is actually a thing. And then you have someone like Macklemore rapping about white privilege and it's great that he uses his platform. I know I'm kind of going on a tangent here, but it just the first thing that came to my head. He, he's using his platform to talk about something like this, but then you have people talking about he's white and can he... It's almost like a paradox. It's a white person talking about white privilege who is almost an example of white privilege, even though he came from nothing, essentially. Um, I don't know. I don't know. You I think you were going to say something. No, I'm listening. It's cool. Um, <clears throat> so, what examples of uh, odd things do they show in Dear White People? What do you mean by odd? So, you mentioned the blackface party. Yep. Now, that happens yep. on yeah, a yeah, regular yeah. basis yes. on campuses around America. I can imagine, yeah. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised if, just like proms and Halloween, <laughs> it's it's on its way over here. Yep. Um. The other thing that happens is they eventually have a uh, try and have a sit-in, um, and it was actually triggered by the sit-in at Princeton in 2015, um, where a bunch of students said, "Well, we don't want a Woodrow Wilson building here. We'd, we want the building name to be different," and which seems odd. Why would you want the building name to be to be different? And it's because Woodrow Wilson was a uh, a glorious, a glorious racist. Excellent. Uh, who removed uh, people um, of color from his administration, supported Jim Crow laws, um, reversed certain things to make sure. He, he honestly felt that um, he, he believed the mythology, which is w what we're going to talk about. Um, so he was, he'd done some terrible things. You can go and listen to Michael. Uh, Malcolm Michael, Michael Malcolm Gladwell, and okay. other people who comment on that, or go and watch the footage and see what their point is. Malcolm Gladwell's—he's—he's he's, uh, biracial, isn't he? Don't know. I'm sure he is. He's got cool hair. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Dear dear white people, um, one of the other odd things that came to my mind, um. And it's one that kind of goes through my head over and over again whenever I see something or hear something that's happened in America. Is if you've seen if you've not seen it, I highly recommend you watch it, regardless of what your background is. Uh, it is an insightful look at, um, I guess, our society. Um, is the scene where um, they're having a party and um, one of the white folks. Uh, one of the white man people. Oh, we're going to come to this. We're going to come to this. Oh, wait. Okay, fine. Um, <clears throat> otherwise, you'll burn out all your notes. Sure, we'll... yeah. <laughs> um, okay. So, some people say, what is this white privilege nonsense and why do we have to combat it? Is this a form of reverse racism uh, <laughs> where people can say one thing and these people can't say this thing? And I like to direct people to um, some references uh the sociologist um was it sociologist i think she might have been an accountant or something she was uh her name was peggy mcintosh and she first wrote about um 40 different characteristics of um white 
privilege and male privilege um, in an article from a long time ago. Um, and we'll reference that so you can have a look where that came from. And that started a discussion. And you, you've probably seen the things on our list because they've been sort of memed up and blogged again and again and again, and uh, only to be responded to by fairly ignorant people saying, oh, what, so if I did this, then it's that black privilege. <laughs> right. So let's get a better description of what we're talking about. Uh, Lawrence Bloom, um, he uh, describes white privilege using three factors. He said it's he says it's uh, unjust enrichment, spared injustice, and privileges privileges not related to injustice. So, uh, to cover those in a bit more detail, unjust enrichment can come from bad institutions where uh, white people could be benefiting from his, a historical legacy of racism. For example, the <laughs> Met Police. <laughs> Um, the police in general in the UK, uh, until the McPherson report came out in 1984, um, they were incredibly, uh, they were a racist institution. That's not to say the police individuals themselves were all racist, but the institution was geared, was set up in a way that was bad. Uh, although if you go back to the 70s and 80s, they had like a black power desk and they were set up to take down um, any uh, emergence of, um, the Black Panthers in the UK, which you can catch up with that story if you watch Gorilla on uh, Sky Atlantic, which is awesome. It covers that story. Um, spared injustice, targeted unjust treatment, uh, which is a benefit to those who are not targeted. So if if you're in Ferguson, if you're a white person living in Ferguson and the police are focused on black people and are saying like the guys on like the guy on the Sky News video that, uh, you know, we only kill black people, as he said, um, then, well, you're, you're being enriched because of something unjust. Uh, spared injustice targeted. Have you seen that clip? Oh, look it up. He was recorded by his own dash cam. A woman was nervous saying, I've seen too many videos where people get shot by the police on these stops and I'm not taking my hands off the wheel. What is it called? It's a Sky News article from last week. Uh, if you look up Sky News, police, um, I don't know, just write kill black people. That'll get you on a watch list. And then privilege is not related to injustice. So uh, majority cultures, cultures and uh, workplace cultures where there's a majority of a population, um, their culture will automatically take over and give them a privilege over the people who are a minority um, in that population. So though th there, there is a slightly more technical description of um, uh, privilege. And I think it's worth talking about why we know that that privilege exists uh, and what we can do about it. This all goes to a good place. We're all going to be friends at the end. <laughs> um, before we do that, we'll talk about one of your notes. You're going to watch that video first? Go watch it. So, how was that news article? 
Was that news? That was on Sky News. Yeah, you just that was Sky. It didn't feel like news. It just felt like it just it didn't it didn't feel like news. Uh, it didn't feel like news. It didn't feel like news. Why? Um, just felt. I don't know. I didn't like. I mean, how how long? Um, so a lot of these things come from. Um, if if we put some more uh, something more concrete behind that, um, I went off off to look at some statistics mm-hmm. because I didn't want to talk about this being a feeling, yep, or a whim, one of those whimmy things. Um, so uh, you know Nihal, you know Nihal, uh, the guy from Radio something, Radio One, does it? Yeah, <laughs> and. Uh, he did a tweet and he said he sees a lot of uh, uh, players of colour moving around for uh, extraordinary sums. Talking about football. Okay. Yeah. That's me and you would have strange faces. Right, yeah. Um, <laughs> that thing with the ball, 11 people kick it around. Yes. People get very excited when they, yeah, anyway. Uh, when they, there's, a, there's like a net, they store the ball and when they get yeah. manage to get the ball into the storage pit, yeah. they get very excited. Oh. It's odd. They play it on the grass, don't they? And he's fr- he says there's not many managers of color being paid these same amounts. Mm. Why is that? Um, and I retweeted with some stats. I, I retweeted that and asked and, and said it with some stats. And I said, yeah, it's funny that um, NHS, 6% of the uh, board members are um, BAME, British. No, that's not right. Black. Asian or minority ethnic. That's it. BAME. We're BAME. Um, but 37%. Are we born the darkness? <laughs> <laughs> so 37% of consultants are BAME. But only 6% of board members. Mm. Uh, in the FTSE 100, out of 1,000 directors, 1.7% are British-born BAME. So I said, same, same questions there. Why is it that in 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 um, in senior positions, people are we are missing? So I went to try and figure this out and looked at the stats, and um, it's not the po- it's not based on population. Four percent of the population is BAME. Yep. It's more about the stats in education. People who since two thousand and I went back to two thousand and one. I thought that'd be enough. People who are graduating from postgraduate. Uh, qualifications in business and law and accounting uh, between 25 to 30% up to sort of last year 31% BAME and from a population that's continuously pumping out 25 to 30% BAME people qualified to run companies and be in management situations 1.7% of them to be able to get into those kind of positions is odd Um, and that was one example of of many others and I thought is this about is this about class and money uh, so I went to look at the stats of where they came from. 34% uh, from comprehensive schools, and which is an equal stat to those from private schools. So it's not a class-based thing. Um, there's definitely something funny going on here. Um, so I kept digging into this and reading papers and trying to figure out where we are. And uh, uh, what I got to um, was uh, something called the Resume Survey, 2003. Um which has been quoted a lot, and is it, you know, it, it ties in with um, Chloe Bennett's recent news story. 
So you saw the Chloe Bennett story? No. What if I call her Chloe Wang? No. Seriously? No. If we tell a story, I might know it. Marvel Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. I haven't seen it. Marvel Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. But it's comics. <laughs> well, I watched the first episode, first two episodes. And I didn't, I didn't think it. But I want to watch it because people say it gets better. It's where the... um. Inhumans? Yes. It's all about them. Did, is that is that thing you did? Yeah, pretty much. Oh, cool. Um, so she didn't get any business. No positions, no roles. Chloe Wang, mixed race. Um, I keep saying all these 1980s terms. What did you say earlier? Biracial. But then you have to know if someone is biracial, triracial, tri quadracial. Mixed heritage. So she changed her name. She changed her name from Chloe Wang to Chloe Bennett, Chloe Bennett and started getting roles. Yeah? Resume survey 2003 found that if your name's Emily or Greg, you'll get, you know, callbacks from employers. Um, but if they have same exact same CVs are sent out to same, uh, uh, you know, some uh, similar sample of uh, the population of employers and your name is Lakeisha or Jamal, you are going to get 50% less response. Um, and whether you get the job or not, well, it's difficult to test for that. So where we get to is that we have institutions, or institutional practices that are biased. You know, what's in a name? A lot's in a name. Um, there's another article I'll put in the thing about how women have overcome uh, gender biases in recruitment by giving themselves more, you know, if your name's Maxine and you put your name as Max, you are going to get <laughs> over 25% more callbacks. Did you hear about this thing where uh, two um, owners of a company who were, they're both female, they changed, once they changed their name, well, they, once they invented a, um, uh, a dude over email, they invented a dude. Um, they started getting more like replies back. Okay, yeah, yeah. Did you read about this? No. So the, the title of this post uh, is. Two women entrepreneurs who invented a fake male co-founder say acting through him was like night and day. Oh, can you put it in, in as a as a thing? So basically the premise of this was literally um, when they were sending emails out and getting in touch with people as themselves, Yeah, they went, they were basically were not being taken seriously. But as soon as they invented this Keith guy, Keith, Keith man, <laughs> literally no Keith man. Yeah. Um, they started getting more kind of responses. People started taking them seriously, but no one ever questioned the validity of this man. Well, yeah, Peggy McIntosh was talking about that, but you know, it, it, these privileges all seem to exist side by side. Okay, so so we know this stuff happens, and you might be thinking, so what? This ain't about movies. No, no, it is, it is, and we're going to explain why. But to do that, we first need to talk about how we got here. 
Okay, so let's let's uh, let's just jump to an aside for a second. Although this might initially sound like a massive aside, um, I'm going to talk about the beginnings of this. And the beginnings of this talk about uh, sorry, the beginnings of this are about the beginnings of uh, colonialism. Weirdly, uh, what would you say to people that say, "Oh God, it always comes back to empire and slavery and shit. Why don't you just get over it?" Which I've also had actually said to me. People, things were different then. What would your response be to that? Um, would you agree with that? Things were different then. Things were different then. Things were different then, but... So we should get over it? No, no, absolutely not. Because whilst maybe the economy might have been different, the the fundamental nature of how people are treated basically hasn't changed. How um, we're treated hasn't changed since the days of empire. Strikes back. <laughs> I, I don't know. I think I think it has. We're not slaves anymore. We're no, not, no. We're well, not building railroads in Africa, which is what the Indians were brought over to Africa to do. Yeah. Okay. Well, we're talking about us Indians. Well, Indians, blacks, non-whites. You see, I think all that's changed is that we're not slaves. We're still seen as <laughs> the lesser people. Right. Okay. So let's 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 just talk about that for a second. Slaves in the traditional sense, anyway. Okay. So if we talk about so w- slaves were around during the time of the empire, yeah. Mm-hmm. When did when did the empire end? You're asking the wrong guy. No, no. When do you when do you think it ended? Sorry. When do you think it okay. ended? Okay. Um. I'm gonna sound totally stupid here. No, no, not at all. I want to say the 1800s. <laughs> The 1800s. Yeah. I probably would have said something similar. Okay. Maybe not 1800s, because I know we know that India was still part of the empire okay. during these world wars. Yeah. So when did the British Empire end, end if we know that? End of World War Two. Yeah, that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So that, that's 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 all I'm asking for, rough guess. There's no test. It's cool. <laughs> Relax. Um, so people are often surprised to learn that you know the British were in in Kenya um, in the sixties putting people into concentration camps. Excellent. Um, after the British had already put people in concentration camps in the nineteen hundreds in South Africa, yeah, in the Boer War, and uh, then said that the Germans putting Jewish people in concentration camps that was bad, bad times, mm. bad times for Jewish people. Mm. But then the British went and did the same thing in in Africa afterwards. Um, in you know they still have refused to they refused to the government refused to, to apologize. I'm sure people don't agree with that sentiment. Um, Rwanda uh, was a Belgian UN protectorate until 1961. This is more about uh, colonies as well as not just British Empire. Um, Mozambique was uh, Portuguese until 1975. Uh, in 1901, that's when the Commonwealth adopted white, th- this white Australian policy, which was, uh, which was to say we are going to protect um, uh, these neo-Europe's, which is a, a a name for them, yeah. where white people have settled, okay, um, but not so much the other places. Um, and then so they started breaking apart the empire because there was negative sentiment here and mm. there. And it was very expensive, and people wanted an NHS rather than an empire. Yeah. 
Um, but the empire was still active in in, in 1980. Uh, Southern Rhodesia. Was it? Zimbabwe. Nice. Um, then they had the British, Nalish, British Nationality Act was in 1981, um, which was which is where the imperial sort of dominions they were called they were actually called white dominions. Okay. For a while, and yeah. they became territories and protectorates in 1981. Mm. So it's a slightly softer name. Nice. Um, uh, Brunei was still uh, was still going strong till 1984, and technically Hong Kong was part of that empire, and that was transferred in 1997. What year were you born? 88. So if you take the uh, conservative date of 1997. So, so if you take a conservative date of 1981 and you say that when the Territories Protectorates, Protectorates uh, Act, British Nationality Act happened, mm. then the empire only finished 36 mm. years ago. That's within my lifetime. If you take a more liberal date of, well, tr Hong Kong was transferred back to the Chinese in 1997, mm. well, then the empire ended 20 years ago. That's within your lifetime. Are you surprised to hear that? Yes. Uh, I'd say I'm as surprised to hear that as I was the fact that essentially well, no, Jim Crow was still around in the 60s. As well as the British Empire, the other European states had their shit going on. So, for example, France, Haiti was still paying back independence debt till 1947. They paid back, if you adjust for inflation, um, 40 billion. What does that mean to you? Nineteen forty-seven. It's a lot yeah. of money. Yeah, they were paying that from when they were released from bondage. When um, they gave, you know, they had a leader, a sort of. Uh, there's you could look up the history behind this. There was a guy who was given Haiti, and the people sort of took it and claimed independence. But the French wanted. Um, compensation for what they would lose mm. through from all the sugar farms. Um, so they said, "You owe us this much. You're independent, but you owe us this much, which is our our losses." And they were Haiti was still paying that till 1947. Right. And then there were some other charges they were still paying till the 1980s as compensation for what the French lost from the labor from slaves. This stuff didn't happen a long time ago. We're just on, you know, I mean, the Republic of India is now how old? Six, uh, 60? 70. 70 years old this year. 70 years old. Mm. Yeah? That's not long. You know, if, if we, we, we... How did you feel watching that stuff about the partition? The stuff that's never taught in schools. The fact that it's never taught in schools is, is the biggest bullshit thing why history how can you not teach history it's but why this history why is this important because there's lots of history we're essentially taught growing up that britain is this great country and that they've helped everybody have you seen trevor noah i've, I've seen bits of him but i probably haven't seen okay. him talking about. he has a lot to say about britain called themselves great excellent <clears throat> it's really funny i think People, well, I say people, a lot, uh, some people would have a very different opinion about Britain 
if they knew the history. Um, and so, forty nine percent of this country surveyed said uh, they were proud of empire. And Churchill is one of the biggest heroes, said to be one of the biggest it's heroes exactly of British that. culture. Just that is the fact that people think that he's a hero. He even, won the war. Well, yeah. He won the war. But even though he's done all this stuff to to India, he's still seen as a hero. Still, Britain is a great country because because of why. You could, you could argue and say, and maybe people probably do, you can argue and say that the very foundation of this country is built on lies and the lives of these people. So what would you say to someone that said, okay, so, I mean, you know, we're mentioning Churchill because um, there's you know, lots to say about Churchill. <laughs> he did some really terrible things during the Boer War. He thought he was having a laugh riding around on his horse saying it was wonderful times. And um, even when the World War One and Two was running, he would say, you know, the, the stupid things like the, the Aryan stock is bound to triumph. And we'll give you references to all this stuff. Um, um, I'm going to read you out part of the story because there's an actual quote, uh, which is when Mahatma Gandhi, which where is this from? Let's do show full. This one is from, oh, it's from the New Yorker article or the Independent. We'll put all the links in there. When Mahatma Gandhi launched his campaign of peaceful resistance, Churchill raged um, that he ought to be laying bound hand and foot at the gates of gates of Delhi. Just for the reference, this is a quote. And then trampled on by an enormous elephant uh, with the new viceroy seated on its back. As the resistance swelled, he announced, I hate Indians. They are a beastly people with a beastly religion. Uh, and this hatred killed. This is I'm still reading the article here. To give just one major example, in 1943, a famine broke out in um, Bengal, caused, as the Nobel Prize-winning economist Amartya Sen has proved, uh, statistically, using data science, that's me adding that in there, because that's what I spend my time doing at the moment, um, by imperial policies of the British. In fact, Amartya Sen had done some amazing work and shown that no famine ever has been caused by economics. It's always been political decisions that have driven famines. Um, up to three million people starved to death while the British officials begged, the British officials in India begged Churchill to direct food supplies back to the region. He bluntly refused. He raged that it was their own fault for breeding like rabbits. Uh, I think he's referring to the uh, the people of Bengal, not the British officials breeding like rabbits. <laughs> At other times, he said the plague was merrily culling the population and he would send back a response if they would ask him he would send back a response that said why hasn't gandhi died yet and this goes on there's there's there's, there's more um but after the first episode i'm decided to tone down uh my churchill stuff because um people are not ready to hear this he's a national hero part of the culture of this country um so instead i think it's important to talk about why that culture um infects the mind in a terrible way and what I wanted to talk about for a moment was was slavery. So if I said to you, slavery, you know, which was a thing during yep. the empire, yep, and that we still say affected people, affects people today, both sides, many sides, <laughs> it affects people on many sides. 
would you say that was a good thing, a bad thing? Why? It, how, do, you, do you ever wonder how people could be slave owners? I mean, people say, oh, that was how people were back then. Well, I'm sure people are going to... See, this is the thing. People are going to look back at the things that we've let happen in our time. Mm. Crimea, Syria, yeah, yeah. Yemen. Yemen's happening right now. British bombs are bombing the shit out of Yemen. British, you know, we've just been paid uh, 3.3 billion by the Saudis for bombers, typhoons and tornadoes and bombs. And they're instigating regime change in Yemen. And that's our taxpayer money doing that. We're letting this stuff happen. So people look at us and say, well, how could you let that stuff happen? We look at them and say, how could you own slaves? How, how can that be a thing? I know I'm confounding you. No, I'm just trying to... There's no... How do you... Well, there's two guys. Uh, Grinovisky and Munger. And I've, I've sort of mentioned their work before when I mentioned the Econ Talk, um, um, Empire and Slavery mm. uh, podcast, which is it's on Econ Talk podcast, which is a great podcast. They deconstruct racism and they say, look, you have to first believe the mythology. And the mythology is that these people that are slaves are subhuman. They require care. And therefore, if you look after slaves, you're a good person. You're looking after these people who need looking after. <coughs> the effect of that mythology is you then see yourself as superior to those people. This is a deep psychological problem. Yep. And that mythology of superiority is then sustaining a labor force. Any doubts that you may have about whether this is good or bad is then taken care of by another effect. There's a very famous sociologist called Granovetter, Mark Granovetter. Uh, have you seen, heard uh, read Tipping Point, Gladwell? No, I remember that. Yeah, he's, Mark Gladwell's got a book called Tipping Point. Okay. Good book. Most of it's that? just work rehashed from Mark Granovetter. Right. Um, but Gladwell says it much better. Okay. Much better than Granovetta. And it's about something called threshold behavior, which is an external force that if enough people do something, yep. you'll be cool doing it. So you, two things combined. Okay. The belief in the mythology of superiority and then the threshold effect, threshold effect that... Well, everyone has slaves, and that's how they become so rich because they've got free labor. I'm trying to think of a a similar example. What well, threshold effects? Yeah, just so I understand it. I'm is, is this like the um, is it like when your parents say, "If everybody jumps off the cliff, does that make it right?" Sort of thing. Is that no? Well, well, I think yeah. Every Indian kid's probably heard their parents say this. Yeah. If if everyone. If everybody jumped off the cliff, would you jump off the cliff as yeah, well? Yeah. Well, Mark Granovetter says, yes, you would. Okay. If you believe the mythology behind why you're jumping off oh, the cliff. Oh, is this the um, monkeys climbing up the ladder thing? No. <laughs> do you know what I'm talking about? I do. I yeah. do. This is a different thing. Um, there, there, it's like, to do, it's like I, 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 you know, when I change my diet, um, I didn't change it f for ages because there was no belief that there was any benefit to it. Once I changed my thinking and re realized that there was benefit to the change I was about to make, especially because I was suffering from health effects. Yeah. Once the belief changed, then the threshold effect took over, which was because there were enough people around me that had that lifestyle right. and had that diet, 
I was able to change my diet very easily. Mm -hmm. Those two things together combined to to make a social effect. So yeah, it, it was normal for them. And it was a good thing for them. They saw themselves as good people. That's difficult to imagine because you think that there were some kind of weird, slave-owning, nasty people like they're portrayed in, in movies often. So all of this started after that. All of this started when slaves were released, okay. given independence, and then the labor fell. Okay, so, I mean, we're going to have time to cover all of this in this part two, but we'll cover as much as we can. Yeah. What happened next was, and it happened through movies and TV more than anything else, um, which is why it relates to the stuff that we talk about on, re- on a regular basis. Um, Adeli Funama calls it codification. Uh, Rennie Yedalodge, who recently wrote uh, a, a, quite a cool book called Why I No Longer Talk to White People About Race, uh, uh, calls it historic amnesia. Um, and what it amounts to is a form of structural racism that was intentional by a small minority of people but believed by the vast majority of people. And this historic amnesia meant that we were, we, meaning non-whites, were eliminated from history. So there were a million Indians that fought in World War One, two point and about two and a half million. Yep. Um, and this, there's like 400,000 Muslims. Yep. Uh, 74,000 died in World War One. Uh, there was like 2.5 million fought in World War Two. Many, many more died. And so we, um, as Indians, as part of the empire, helped win. In fact, you know, th- there's no way the British could have won without the resources and manpower from India. Um, but we're not... We are... We, <laughs> It's odd that we never see ourselves in the war movies. And if we do, it's in some kind of subordinate position um, or in something like um, um, uh, a 70s TV series where we're just being made fun of. Um, And that, you know, if if we want to fast forward, there were a whole series of films in the 1900s, starting with a film called Birth of a Nation, um, which just depicted um, black people in a very negative way and then had themes. Adelie Funama calls it codification. Themes like in uh, King Kong, 1983, and uh, 1960s, Planet of the Apes, that it's showed um, a, a world that people were could be afraid of. That was the being handled almost as if they were trying to explore the, the psyche of... Uh, of of change of people through this this change just through the civil rights movement. Go on, you were going to say. Um, I, I was going to say something. Um, um, so I was. I, I saw the DVD cover of Birth of a Nation, the D.W. Griffith version. Nineteen fifteen. Nineteen fifteen. Sorry. Um, no, no, that's right. Well, D.W. Griffith directed it. Yeah. Um, what happens in that film? Do you know what happens in that film? I've, I've I haven't seen it. I've seen clips from Thirteenth. Um, oh right, okay, yeah, fine. That but was I enough. was, hold on, I'm just trying. Yeah, to a guy to... is basically accused of rape, uh, raping a white woman, and he's black, and he gets chased down but by. He's a white dude playing a black guy. Yeah, yeah, and then he gets chased down by a load of clan members. So it's a KKK film, and um, they lynch him. Not much of a story. Not many reversals. Character focus. 
surprise ending, nothing, none of that stuff. Um, <laughs> and 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 to 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 hit home with this point, he wanted the KKK to be, you know, sort of have this image of power. So he 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 had them burning a cross. Now, up until that point, the KKK didn't burn crosses. This came from this movie, which starts to uh, paint this background of media that is that uh, the media has supported uh, a certain level of um, subliminal programming that's occurred in society, which is difficult to explore because people don't know what they don't know. And I hate saying that because Rumpfsfeld ruined that phrase. So what I was going to say, I'm not sure. Do you know about what D.W. Griffith said about this film? Go for it. So this is what I was going to say, and it's on the DVD cover of the film. Um, and it's also one of the opening credits in the later version of it um, on the second run of the film. So the opening title card says, a plea for the art of the motion picture. We do not fear censorship for we have no wish to offend with imp- improprieties or obscenities, but we do demand as a right the liberty to show the dark side of wrong that we may illuminate the bright side of virtue, the same liberty that is conceded to the art of the written word, that art to which we owe the Bible and the works of Shakespeare. And if in this work we have conveyed to the mind of ravages of war to end that war may be held in abhorrence, this effort will not have been in vain. It was interesting, actually. I read that, and it almost sounded as though he was trying to denounce the racism. <laughs> and then I read the rest of it. Have you ever heard of the, Have you ever heard of the Daughters of the Confederacy? I have. I don't know what it is though. Okay, so did you see so Charlottesville? Yep. Um, there's a statue being torn down. Oh yeah. Uh, of who was it again? General, what's his name? Lee. What's his name? We don't know American history. We don't care about American Robert E. Lee. Okay. Now that statue looked like it was. Uh, uh, I can't remember. How, how strong it was. But there were some other statues that were torn down. They literally just folded. Um, and these statues are all around important public buildings and colleges and universities. Now, at two points in history, one is post-slavery, um, um, at the turn of the century, sort of way after uh, um, the Civil War had ended. And two, in the 60s during the Civil Rights Movement, that's when all of these statues were put up. And they fold really easily because they're made of bronze. They're made of rubbish. And the reason they fold, and the, re- the reason they're rubbish is because they were built for like, they were put up for like $200 each. And, and they're financed by an organization called the Daughters of the Confederacy, which is a right wing organization that was trying to bring back uh, the memory of the South in the war and had all these statues put up in awkward places um, because of their whole agenda. There were there were there was never a movement in America to say let's hero worship the people that lost the war. That never happened. So it's completely okay for all of these statues to be torn down, uh, and people don't understand that. And 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 that's where a lot of this sh- sh- this shit comes from. But the mythology is different because the mythology comes from movies and TV. So if you if you follow that through, Imitation of Life was a, an interesting film in the nineteen thirties, which which is building that shame of being. Um, of having a black parent gone. I was, I was just sorry. I was just looking at this Robert E. Lee thing and um, and Daughters of Confederacy thing. But I came across this article. I don't know if you've seen it or not. So Robert E. Lee's descendant 
he was a part of a church um and he made a um speech where he denounced white supremacy um okay. but he if he left that church that he was a part of because some people of members of that church weren't happy with the speech that he made <laughs> but it's interesting to to see that that a descendant of Robert Ely did that that's nice um kind of yeah I did like your reaction when I told you about the uh, slave centers in Fantasia. That was the 1940s. <laughs> you were in shock. Uh, yes, I was. But it it's cut out of the new one of 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 uh, recent releases. They eventually Disney cut it out. There were slave centers that that looked after that you know clean people's feet and were the slaves of the white larger centors in the original Disney Fantasia, because you know film after film after film. Um, the, that this mythology that started in the time of slavery was, um, well, it, it, it the the mythology itself was or is. I'm going to say is because we've just watched Charlottesville and we can see mm. how powerful it was. It is an institution, and it's an institution that was required to allow the profitable economy of labor from slaves to exist. Without it, that wouldn't have worked. Yeah. So and, and, you know, and it's it's a. Uh, it's still there. And this this carries on. I mean, I'm going to zoom through some of these other films. Uh, I made a joke last time about West Side Story being a sci-fi film. It takes <laughs> place in 1961 in an alternative universe where there's no black people or Latinos in New York. Um, yes. I do like how... I do love these reboots. Planet, Planet of the Apes. We just watched War of the Planet of the Apes. Oh, God, yeah. Um, and, 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 and what I love about that... You, you talk about it. Tom. Yeah, I think... I said this last time as well, is that not only does it, we'll talk about what it represents, I guess, in a second, but... Well, that was 1968, what, what they were trying to do. They're trying to say, look, this is a world taken over by, uh, oh, the apes have evolved, yeah. so taken over the world. Yeah. And then, what's his name? Uh, Charlton Heston, is it? Yeah. Is it? Uh, yeah. yeah. He, he lands. Yep. He's the astronaut, come back, comes back down to Earth yep. and says, oh, and the people that were left can't talk because of this virus. and. Yep. I'm now in this land, and I have to survive against these people who are these these, these creatures. You're gone. Codification. Um, I was going to talk talk about them from a film perspective. The only film talk that we've had. Um, That's fine. From, a, I don't think there's been another trilogy. Arguably, maybe Back to the Future, but another trilogy that's been as good. As it's, as the one before it, actually, Bark to the Future. No, not not Back to the Future because the one before. No, no, Back to the Future. Is that a dog film? Bark to the Future. Back, back to the future. Back, back to the future. Um, each film has been as better, if not as good as the last one. Um, that was just a minor point that I wanted to put in there. But go on, let's talk about what it actually is. Let's, let's. I think the last film itself was probably more. Relevant to uh, to kind of what we're speak- talking about right now, I guess. Yeah, I think the filmmakers had a very clear understanding of what the of material they were dealing with. They weren't dealing with, they didn't just reboot it and make a Planet of the Apes film. What they did was they took the underlying subtext, the codified subtext, and they said, okay, well, well let's flip it on his head. Let's tell the story from the perspective of the apes. Yep. 
And then you can see what it's like for a culture to be taken over Absolutely. by a superior military force yep. and to try and survive against that force. Mm. And this is what makes these films great because they've they've actually carried on the theme mm. of the original. Yeah. Um, but almost flipped it on its head. Yeah, they have, and it, it's 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 wonderful. Um, but that's why I think these fi- these sets of films are probably one of the most important films of our time, not just from a cinematic aside, cinematic perspective aside, but from a societal, uh, I guess, perspective. It's what you've just said is is just that to have told this story from, I guess, from where its foundations came from and now to tell it from a perspective of the way it's told uh is brilliant it's funny how things change over time um 1967 there was a tv series in the uk called rainbow city uh about um a black family living in birmingham and today we have benefit street um (laughs) um, 1968 we had the first black tv presenter um she went on to be an MP in Jamaica and she she will put a link into the things she says about that time. Um uh, we were still suffering from things like carry on up the Khyber and um the strange white future that 2001 a space odyssey presented. Um you know there were like these grunting um dark-skinned creatures at the beginning, first apes, then creatures, and then everyone they were you know, I mean even their tech guy wasn't Indian. So I'm not sure what was going on there. Um, the only thing we can think of is that Hal was programmed by the Indians who got left behind, and that's why he, Hal was psycho. So I think there's a there's another side to that story which we don't. Yep. <laughs> they were angry. It's a good theory there. Um, you know, the 80s was awful. Um, it's nice if you watch. It's not nice at all. It's uh, have you, you have you seen This Is England yet? The movie. I haven't, but funnily enough, I um. You seen the combo scene in the shop? No. Okay. I met an actor the other day, and he was actually talking about the guy was he's probably like seventeen or eighteen. Yeah. Um, he's a young white dude, but he was telling me about this film as well, and just just that he's talking about how interesting it was to see how the things about race and all that kind of stuff was uh, was so. But wait, were you talking about the the old one, or the new one? Are you talking about the series? No, not the series. The series is good too, mm. but the movie, the movie that started it all. When was that? Was old, wasn't it? Uh, yeah. It was when. Two thousand six. Two thousand seven. I've got. Why is that different? Okay, you go. Interesting. Yeah. Anyway, but yeah, he was just telling me the same thing. Is that it was, just that it was, and it was what was nice though. What the point I'm getting at here is, it was nice to see. Someone from his generation talk about a film that is meant to be important for our society, I guess, and have the opinion that he had on it. He said it was just an interesting look at how the country is and kind of was, I suppose. Um, And just how so much of it carries over to today, I guess. I have so much respect for Sky to put uh, Gorilla on Sky Atlantic. Yeah. Because it's like This Is England... It's an appropriate depiction mm-hmm. of the of of the racism of the time, and Gorilla is gruesome, and it's just as uncomfortable to watch as Detroit. I'm sure, although I can't be a hundred percent sure because 
I'm not white, but I'm sure it's really fucking uncomfortable to watch. Um, but that's what the world was like, and it wasn't that long ago. It lives in the memory, um, memories of people from our you know parents and grandparents. Yeah. So that is a world that we grew up hearing about. Um, I'm going through the 70s here. I was going to talk about Hi Mum again because that was just so funny and weird. But I'll talk about that another time. And <laughs> let's zoom through. Uh, the 80s were really awful. Look at this. Terminator. So many science fiction films painted a white future. Uh, Soul Man. You couldn't believe about Soul Man until you looked it up. That was one of the most racist films ever, ever made. Yeah. Uh, it just reminded me of... Um, what's his face? Fisher guy playing the Indian dude in short circuit. <laughs> I still, to this day, can't believe that that was even allowed. Uh, so, as a point of embracism, <laughs> yep. both short circuit and uh, Big Trouble in Little China loved them at the time. Still do. I mean, you know, the ultimate embracism is Peter Sellers in the party. Oh, you haven't seen that? No, I haven't seen oh, that. Was fuck, that. that's a phenomenal film if you can appreciate, if you can, you know, give yourself over to embracism for an hour and a half. <laughs> Incredibly racist. Before there was. What I feel like I've heard of this. I'm sure we've had the conversation before on another podcast. Um, yeah, science fiction films, which are now changing slowly. You know, Valerian makes a pathetic effort. You were looking at. <laughs> I just saw that, like the, you type it in the first video comes up is birdie num num yes that's where that phrase is, phrase is from uh, just saying that phrase you've made some listeners very happy already I know <laughs> anyone who remembers that film um, um, but yeah that, you know, th there's a, a lot of embracism that's happened over the years which is people have said alright fuck it we'll deal with this because I mean from a certain perspective it's kind of funny but uh that needs, you know, that, that that that's slowly changing. There's a lot of things which have happened which are just awful, like the Scarface and the Cubans. I talk about that a lot because it's part of, you know, it comes into sociology. Uh, the Mariel boat lift, lift happened in the 1980, where you know 125,000 Cubans went from Port Mariel um, to America as refugees, and regular people in boats grabbed them and took them in, and they added to the economy and. Jobs weren't lost and it was all good and they settled and mixed into Florida and all up the yeah, East Coast. Um, but no one remembers this amazing um, humanitarian achievement. All anyone ever remembers from that time is three years later when Scarface was made. And they, did, they, want, they didn't want to make Scarface. Um, the Miami Tourist Board said no, but the studio said, no, fuck you, we'll make it in California then. And the same thing happened when the same uh, production companies went to make Temple of Doom. Um, you know, they said, yeah, Indians eat chilled monkey brains. I mean, <laughs> um, I, lo I love, I love this thing. Uh, Hoik, one of the production team, uh, there's a, there's a quote here from an interview with him. He said, he later recalled at one point when we were writing it, yeah, we told George, that's George Lucas, um, uh, and Steven Spielberg, who, you know, were involved in this, that we know a lot of Indians. We've been there. I don't think they're going to think this is really so cool. Um, do you think we're going to have trouble shooting there? He said. Uh, he said, 
This is George Lucas. Are you kidding? It's me and Steve. Months later, they called and said, we can't shoot in India. They're really upset. Um, so they shot in Sri Lanka instead. Uh, and some, some of it in London. Uh, the Indian government basically wanted final uh, editing, final cut privilege, editing rights, because they said this is just offensive and we don't want it going out like this. But the studio said, well, we don't care. So a lot of this has come from studios over the years that have just said, fuck it, we're going to present culture this way. So this is one of my questions that I had and I've kind of been asking myself for a while, I guess, and was one of the questions I, I kind of thought of. And I'm not sure. If I've got hundreds of examples like this. I'm just going over some of them. Well, I'm not sure if I put it in notes or not. Well, the, well, the question was, when do we get to the point where is enough is enough? Like when when do we say we can't make stuff like this anymore? When... When does it become offensive? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Because one thing I found watching the shows yeah. that I've watched uh, and continue to watch, even wrestling as an example, um, back in the day, and I'm sure you might remember this, um, when there was WWF, they had stereotypical characters. Let's say if it was an Indian guy, yeah, he'd play a terrorist. If it was a Russian guy, he'd play... Well, hang on, to be gun. precise, if it was an Indian guy, he'd play an Arab terrorist. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Regardless of whether he was Indian or not. Yeah. Um, or Muslim or whatever. When, you know, that they've kind of phased that kind of stuff out. So they're being slightly progressive, especially with this Indian guy still champion, by the way. So let's go India. Wrestling. Um, yeah. Um, which right. is ironic considering their support for the Trump man. Okay. Um, first, it's not a question that needs answering, but it's just a question that I have in terms of when, kind of when do we say enough is enough? When do we... Well, there's, there's a documentary that tries to uh, cover that and it's called The Problem with Apu. Okay. As in Apu from The Simpsons? Apu from The Simpsons. Simpsons. <laughs> the most pervasive... Uh, long-lived racist character of any program ever. Um, and I know many Indians um, and other, you know, well, mainly Indians, who don't watch The Simpsons. And if you talk to any Americans that have got famous in America, really any relatives from America, at some point in their workplace, everyone has had to deal with the ARPU problem. This is a white guy doing a fake Indian accent, and it's a character that's been on national TV for like 20 years. And it's really not doing Indians any favors. Well, see, this is the thing, right? So, okay, okay, here's a, here's a question, whether it's a, a moral or an ethics question or whatever it is. If you can put something like that on TV... Yeah, is that privilege? Anyway, carry on. If you, like that on TV. if you can put a character like that on TV and have a white person voice him, and then again, and then you have someone in the workplace or someone imitating Indians with the same kind of accent. Technically, if you're allowing that, or let's say if that person's being um, disciplined for it, let's say, for example, surely then the thing that's happening on TV should be disciplined do you try, I'm trying to articulate it in a, in a in a better way, but do you see what I'm trying to say? 
technically it's forgivable if they're, they're allowing it on TV. What do you mean? How do you mean? So let's say you, one of your white friends yes. does an Indian accent yes. in the same way that Apu does. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I see what you mean now. Okay, yeah. Technically, it's forgivable. Not not by us particularly, but by society if it's allowed to be on TV. Do you see what I mean? Well, that's that's the whole problem with it. Why has this continued for so long? They honestly feel, they've been interviewed about it, Matt Groening's been interviewed about it, and they honestly feel, oh, it's not racist, it's just funny. It's just funny. Literally, the response was, the Indian accent, we as Americans, we find it really funny. <laughs> wow. And they're not wrong. Yeah. We're Indians and we find the Indian accent funny. Yeah. <laughs> um. But but that's, that's not the response that so he should be giving. So then that's the definition of embracism, isn't it? <laughs> well, it, it isn't it because we we as a people are allowing that to happen. But then, where are the boundaries? <laughs> Dunkirk. Yeah. We I haven't watched it yet. Neither have I. I don't know if I want to watch it. I'm not sure. Why? Representation. I think um, in the same way, if I'd have known when I watched Band of Brothers, and it disappoints me because I really love Band of Brothers, in the same way that Band of Brothers don't have any representation, yeah, um, it's disappointing because World War Two really does fascinate me, and it's it's annoying and shocking to think that we're not. Not just us, but other races aren't represented in these films. This is me. This is my um, pre-woke hat coming on again. Um, you don't. You don't see it. You just see a good piece of art, and then you leave it at that. But when you think about it from another level, from another perspective, of uh, um, a, a member of the BAME community, it's something completely different. And it's hard to turn that off when you've acknowledged who you are and acknowledged that these films aren't acknowledging you. You're not being included in these films. And you suddenly feel like a child in a playground who's excluded from everything. So it's annoying. Well, and it's, well it's more than that, especially when you find out that there were Indians there. That makes it worse. What do you mean? Oh, as in like, it's not as if not you're not in being the, included yeah, so not, because not you just weren't there. Right, 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 yeah. You're being excluded from history. Is it because I was a BAME? <laughs> this is actually... This is... Days of Future Past problem. <laughs> okay. Neil McGregor, former director of the British Museum, believes the UK has a remorseless obsession with the Second World War that's not found anywhere else in the world. Uh, he talks about interesting things like, um, you know, no one wants to know about Germany now. They're obsessed with freezing the relationship as it was 70 years ago. Um, because it was, you know, great. Britain was the most great um, back then. So Britain is then a war-obsessed amnesiac that, <laughs> that doesn't want to remember you know, important specific details. So that leads us to the next question, which I'll leave to you. Maybe in the mic. Where, 
where to now? <laughs> Interesting. Where do we go from here? Because, you know, we're trying to make this as as uh, far more unemotional than the first take, which was like rage and anger. And Well, the, the, the thing is, I don't think you can ever talk about the subject without getting emotional. I think we've done all right today. Yeah, absolutely. I've I've definitely gotten angry a couple of times, but I I don't think about the subject or just at me as usual. Both. Okay. That's I fine. Th- three times, then not a couple of times. <laughs> okay. I don't think you can talk about the subject and not feel anger. Um, at least from my perspective, knowing this topic for just under a year, I suppose I'm still kind of getting. Getting, no, I'm not gonna, I was going to say getting over it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, what, what's difficult is that I'm carefully speaking about this subject. Um, and I've been studying this kind of stuff for 25 years. Yeah. And I leave my front door, go out in the world, and put on my mask of ignorance. Because you have to wear that mask of ignorance to be able to function in society. It's a very difficult thing to do um, because everyone else around you generally is phenomenally ignorant or comfortably ignorant about the things that have happened. You watched um, the BBC documentary, um, My Family, Partition and Me, Anita, yeah. Anita yeah. Rani. It's recently been on because of the, um, I'm going to say, Republic of India anniversary, 70 years. To say that India is 70 years old is the most stupid and ridiculous thing. I mean, you know, we've got Indus Valley coins with yoga symbols on, on them. The, the civilization has been there for over 9,000 years. But anyway, 70 years. <laughs> so, um, so 70 years, yay. Just go on. Just another note, I guess. No, I guess. I always joke about, uh, this is kind of related to what we're talking about just now, this is, I always joke about how when, um, whenever I go somewhere, whether it's, you know, a restaurant or a pub or whatever it is, you talk about this mask of ignorance, it's so hard for me to do that now because I'm so aware of who I am. The first, one of the first thing I always joke about this, one of the first things I do is kind of look around and see, is there any of my people around? Okay, that's interesting. Because... I don't think I'm at that level yet where I feel, at least to some, to, for the most part. Where but I is, feel, that, is that a new thing? Yeah. Is that because of all this material mm. that you've been experiencing? More so now than before. Okay. I was I was aware, funnily enough, I was aware of that before. And I did, I, I wouldn't actively seek them out. And I would rather feel, I would just feel comfortable when I saw, say, one Indian person or one Indian family, for example. Right. Whereas now, because I'm aware and I'm, Actively, probably, there's probably a, wear, a word for this because I'm aware of this. Um, <laughs> so I've just seen your note. Which one? The one where you're talking about this and you've written, is there a way of overcoming this? Yeah. Will this change? <laughs> what happens next episode? <laughs> Go on. Um, I've, I feel more aware of this and I, I'm not sure if it's a form of racism I think it's a form of hyper awareness. Yeah, to feel <clears throat> to feel uncomfortable when there's none of 
I keep saying your people. I feel like it sounds semi-racist when there's none of your. It is. What? It's it is in a way racist. Yeah. But it's also understandable where it's coming from. So carry on. Yeah. When there's none of your people around, I f- I start to feel uncomfortable. Um, especially from by himself, by myself. In a business I had, I had some uh, black drivers. Yeah. And I used to have terrible sales. And so I'd go out with them to try and support their little um, area, their run, their business in this the type of business that it was. They could earn a lot of money selling in, in mm. their area. And um, this subject used to come up a lot. They were hyper aware of um, of their own skin color and how they might be coming across when they walk into a business where everyone's white. And one of them said to me, you don't understand. When I walk in, all they think is, a black guy just walked in. And all the things that go along with that. Yeah. So yeah, you're basically describing exactly, the same thing. And that's exactly the same thing that goes through my head is when I walk into an establishment with all white people, the first thing that goes through my head is they're thinking an Indian guy just walked in. Okay. Maybe. Yeah. I mean, it's Leicester, but... Well, no, it's in, let's say if I wasn't in Leicester, for example. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, it's just... It's uncomfortable. Um, and those stats you were reading out before when you were saying, was it 4% of the... Is it 4% of the country is... The country, yeah. It's about 4%, BAME. Yeah. That's a frightening stat. It's low. Yeah. It's nothing. Um, Makes you wonder where... All the, I mean, immigrants... Im- of that, immigrant population is like less than one. It's 1.6%. So, you know, it makes you wonder where all this Brexit shit came from. But then this is where the wider discussion happens. And this is, I guess, how a lot of this this conversation started was... The remaining ninety-six percent of the people, <laughs> yeah, um, are they aware of privilege? Are they? Do they understand how the BAME society feels? No. This is and this is where the issue is. Why I would think. they be? Well, this is it, and I think this what is, is the media around them? This is where this is historical amnesia comes from. That the input they're getting from school, from the media, from their educational system, it's deleted us. It's deleted significant things. So anyway, where where to now? Um, I'm not sure. I mean, I feel like um, I don't think things will change, at least now, at least probably not even for the next 10 years, maybe more than that. Yeah, you're right. Because it's going to be appropriate depictions like This is England and Gorilla that first changed people's minds about how recently things were not good. Yeah. I think if the, a, a great place to start is, again, you mentioned earlier um, about an article uh, about how if you took 10 films from that, Alan Alan Johnson. Alan yeah, Johnson. You, you take ten films from that era, and you take ten from ten films from this era, and you compare the two. Um, that you're not going to see a difference between the two eras, and I think that's where we need to start. Is because we we're in an uh, I guess I'm going to say an era. I guess we're because we're in an era that we're consuming so much content. We need to begin and start with creating films or even not even creating films is just kind of making people aware of things like Detroit uh, dear white people and creating things like this where people are becoming more aware and quote unquote woke um, 
that is probably one of the best places we can start. And it's just kind of getting this, this type of media in front of the audiences that aren't aware. Also, making a stand makes a difference. I mean, yeah. You said you that, that you were telling me about a um, a job you didn't take. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what happened there? So when I was looking for jobs, um, I had a, an opportunity for an interview that came up. And naturally, you kind of want to know more about the company. And obviously, I was lucky enough to kind of have the name of the company in the job description. And a lot of the places don't have that. Um, and so I looked up the company and um, everything they did looked amazing. And the work and content they were putting out was brilliant. But there were no, there were there was no members. There were no members of the Bain Society within their company. Not one. And you watch a company video, and the company video is full of white people. So okay, so I think it's important for me to ask the next question. Yeah. And it's about statistics. Okay. Which is, in a small sample. Yeah. You're not going to get that, but as the sample increases, it should be representative of society. Mm -hmm. So I mean, were there a lot of people at this company? Central limit theorem, in case anyone's interested. I don't know what that is. Um, <laughs> there was probably around 30 or 40 people. Okay, well, that's that's a, a fair amount. <clears throat> but, I, I, but I get where you're coming from. It's It could be disturbing. Yeah, and, you know, I'm sure there were very nice people, but I, I then said... Yeah, they could all be absolutely wonderful people. Yeah, right? of course. But you made a decision. Yeah, I sent the recruiter an email and I said I didn't feel comfortable because there were no there was no representation within this company and that I wouldn't want to take the interview. That's interesting. Um, and and, and that, that, that's quite a privilege in Leicester to be able to do that because I didn't grow up in Leicester. So where I grew up, <laughs> you take what you can get. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, the, the funny thing is, I was I wasn't happy where I was before. Okay. And even though I was really unhappy, I just I wouldn't I'd rather pass that by than probably be uncomfortable. Yeah. What did the recruiter say? He didn't get read to me. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah. All right. Um <laughs> what else can be done? Transparency. Uh what do we got? Article from the um Independent, uh, recently, only 21% of FTSE 100 leaders published their current diversity levels and only 54% are seen to be actively championing greater diversity in their companies. Excuse me. <laughs> made, me uh, made my entire body react, that did. <laughs> um, so that will help. Um, but that's, I think that's still a bit of a pipe dream. I think what's more powerful is that the BFI are doing what you did. They're just saying no. Yeah. British Film Institute have put three ticks thing in place, uh, which has got a different name now, but um, they're leading the way. You have to have um, representative diversity on screen, uh, <coughs> off screen in your crew, and there should be opportunities being created in the um, the, the, the the program or movie or thing that you're you're making that they're financing. Otherwise, I'll just say, no, that's not the type of country that we want. Um, Probably not many national action people working at the BFI then. No, but this is this is, this is what not but, the but, national. But in, but in the army, 
Just a couple. <laughs> okay. Um, this is what's great about, I'm going to say the industry that we're in because I kind of class it as the same sort of thing. Which industry? The, the film industry. Movies. Movies. Okay. Um, is that more and more we're being surrounded by these doors of equality, I want to call it. Um, this thing by the BFI is a, a brilliant example of it. Um, even if you look at things like Netflix, you look at things like um, Amazon, we're starting to see more and more diverse shows with diverse cast members. Um, there's, you know, always, there's always going to be a fair share of inequality in these shows and movies and things, but uh, just looking at things, you know, Luke Cage, perfect example. I mean, find the the character kind of the foundation of this character is built from kind of black history, I guess. But the fact that we're having shows like this and it's being given the platform that has been giving things that the films like Black Panther, we're talking about a multi-million pound dollars uh, uh, franchise here. We're talking about it being involved in the Avengers, one of the arguably one of the most biggest grossing film franchises of all time. Uh, the more we have things like this, the better position we're going to be in in 20, 30 years' time um, when the next generation come along. Um, and I think one of the best ways to start is, like you said, A, one of them is obviously to take a stand. The second one is talking about it, discussing these things that people aren't discussing and having representation within the media. But with people like Trump in power, we're going to struggle, but it's not going to be impossible. He is purely... He is pure, he's purely um, a reaction. He's a rash. He is America's rash. Yep. Um, because there's a lot of people that are not, not happy with this progression. And it's funny, when you look at it from an, uh, um, an, an, an economic sort of, a st sorry, a more statistical perspective, you see things like the unfair ballot system, where you see that if there's a, a liberal candidate um, and a left left-wing candidate, they absorb a larger amount of votes between them. And if there's only one candidate with, the, with a more right-wing view, that person can get into power because they're concentrating the number of votes because the, 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 the ballot system is a bit fucked. Mm. And we know this, but you know, that's not gonna, it's, an, it's again another institution um, that needs to change. Mm. So, I mean, a lot of people are not liking this. There was a huge negative reaction to Red, White and Black, which was the uh, Captain America follow-up by Marvel. So it's nice to see it happen. Um, I mean, Bloomberg had an article today, uh, which is quite, you know, relevant to this. They said, please don't ban Nazis off the internet, which is a good point because you, you need to know where they are. <laughs> um, what, what we need to do is just do things like tell them the truth. So this is an amazing story about how um, 23andMe, the gene analysis company, you can send them a, like a, I think a cheek swab sample, and they'll send you back your your genes, uh, or your your sort of uh, racial makeup, amongst other things. Yeah. And and see, I found this really annoying because I thought there's white supremacists that are putting their twenty three and Me results online, and they're saying, "Look at that! It says ninety nine percent white European." <laughs> okay, 
you don't understand anthropology. Um, <laughs> and I think 23andMe should battle this by just telling people the truth. What they should be saying is, once upon a time, a tribe left Africa. And that tribe, about 200,000 years ago, went all over the Middle East, India, Northern Europe, um, and almost everyone on the planet uh, outside of you know, that area of Africa is genetically related to this one tribe, this adventurous tribe that we're all from. And in fact, that tribe is has genetic differences with the tribe next door. And we all are closer to that original tribe than than we are or than they are genetically similar to their neighbor. So really, if you want to pick on someone that's different, there's this tribe <laughs> uh, who are not like the rest of us. And if, if there's ever a target that is genuinely different to the, everyone else in the world, yeah. it are the, it's these other tribes. Uh, and obviously I'm joking, but I think 23andMe could, could, could uh, profit from that by sending people <laughs> the truth and say, you are 99.9999% African <laughs> from this tribe uh, via Europe. Uh, and, and stop these nonsense things that people are doing. Um, I think we're going to run out of time, so we don't want it to be too long. We've got some, we've got some bits on, on here that people can study further um, to enjoy themselves. There's some amazing documentaries. There's I'm Not Your Negro. Uh, which are the words of Sam Baldwin spoken by Samuel L. Jackson. That was made in this year. James Baldwin. James Baldwin. What did I say? Sam Baldwin. No, no, Sam Jackson. <laughs> James Baldwin. Um, obviously, watch Detroit. I think it's a very important film. People should watch it. Uh, it's the, almost traumatizing. The sad thing is about this, I guess, last point before we continue. Yeah. Um, you mentioned this when we watched it. It's... It probably will get a bunch of Oscar nominations, but the sad thing is people won't watch it until then. Probably. Probably. Amazing performances all around. Yeah. Uh, Trevor Noah, uh, find his video. I'm sure it's still on Netflix. Uh, he did a stand-up show last year. Now, it's actually very almost, almost the same show that he did about six years ago on Radio 4 at night before he was famous, but it's nice to seeing him actually do the stand-up. Cool. It's just an ama amazing performance. And he's toned it down for, for TV. Uh, 13th must watch documentary it's about the 13th amendment which we didn't get a chance to talk about mm -hmm. and how if you look at the wording of it if slavery was not actually completely abolished um, uh, books by Adelie Funama especially Rennie Edo Lodge if you're a reader I would encourage people to re-examine indignant thinking when people say oh um, you know well, obviously that was, those times were different and we're not like that now Okay, cool. Uh, but what injustices are happening now that people in the future will say, well, we're not like that now. We wouldn't just let the Russians take over like you know, half a country. and you know, <laughs> We wouldn't just let our tax money pay for one country to do regime change on yeah. another. What is happening now? It's important to actually examine that thinking. Um, and I think the one thing I would add, I think if there's, any, if there's nothing else that anyone's interested in, I'd still push them to do one thing, and that is to watch uh, Shashi Tharoor's talks, uh, which we'll link to at the Oxford Union debates. Um, and if you're a person that thinks, this is not my thing, I'm not interested in this stuff, I would challenge you to watch this talk. 
if you haven't already seen it. Mm. It's um, Yeah, and being one of these people who used to say, it's not my thing, I can tell you it's not a good place to be in, especially when you realize who you are, I guess. Regardless of what background you're from, you have as much of a hand in history as anybody else does. Yeah, I, I think I would um, respond to your question that you wrote when you said, is there a way of overcome, overcoming this? Will this change? By saying, yeah, yeah, it changes. I mean, I, I encountered a lot of material when I was younger and had to work my way through it and find a, a comfortable place to be able to live and be happy. And that place is to realize that this is in many ways not our problem, as in not a non-white problem. We are on the receiving end of a problem that has occurred within white culture. Yeah, that's the first thing to realize. Second thing to realize is there will be no unification until we step away from this and realize it's just a weird Pantone problem. (laughs) (laughs) Apart from this obsession with the Pantone of our skin, (laughs) we we are all from the same fucking tribe literally from the same tribe which is which is a, a thought that i hold on to all the time <laughs> no matter how weird the people are that i meet absolutely well on that guys uh thank you so much for listening um if you've made it this far we thank you we hope you've taken something from this um we have enjoyed making this episode um for the right reasons of course um anyway if you like this episode, add us to your collection. Uh, hit subscribe and add us to your um, library of podcasts. Uh, we're on Overcast, Acast, iTunes, TuneIn, Stitcher, I guess, and um, anywhere you like to listen to podcasts. Um, please leave us a review on iTunes if you still use that. Um, otherwise, just listening helps. Um, hit us up on, uh, on Twitter. Uh, if you have any questions or comments, uh, I'm at, at Moveville Kazed and Gushal's at, at Gushal Joshi. Uh, thank you for listening, and we'll see you hopefully in fall.